Canada and the World. I'm your host, Besma Mamani. I'm here at the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. with fantastic guests. I have Rachel Zemba, who's with the Center for New American Security. I have Babak Abbas-Zadeh of the Toronto Center, President and CEO. I have Tom Burns, who is a distinguished fellow at CG currently, but was before the executive director of CG, as well as the IEO, and was our Canadian executive director at the IMF. And I have Bob Fay, who was at the Bank of Canada and is now the director of the Global Economy Group at the Centre for International Governance Innovation. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for having Thank us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Babak, let me start with you. Uh, we were at an interesting dinner uh, at the sidelines of the IMF meeting that you hosted. And we can't talk a lot about uh, what was said because of Chatham House rules. But there was a lot of worry in the room about the global economy generally. And what I'd love to know, particularly for your organization, because the Toronto Centre kind of uh, helps supervisors and regulators who are really in charge of understanding the flow of money in the international financial system. So to see some of the stakeholders there as well, you know, interested in some of the headlines, I'd love for you to give us a little bit about what you think your stakeholders are talking about. What is what is it that is keeping up supervisors and regulators up at night? Well, thank you, Bismar. I think one of the one of some of the most important things that are happening today in the global economy are cause for worry. Like we all read about Brexit, we all see the uh, disruptions that are happening in the international trade around the world, America, China. Also, there's a trend that some countries are trying to roll back the prudential regulation of their banking systems. So this is all cause for worry. But for us. The worries at a deeper level. The Toronto Center for Global Leadership and Financial Supervision was established in 1998 in the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis. About 10 years later, we had the great global financial crisis, and uh, a little bit over 10 years has passed now. Whether we have a crisis now or not, crises have seemed to be cyclical since going back to the 1670s, the tulip, Dutch tulip crisis, right? So it's never going to go away. So we have to really be on the ball and very cautious about all the activities that are happening around the world in terms of credit, the flow and all that. So let me stop here because I want to hear from others, but we are not letting go of being vigilant. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Tom, you've been in this business for quite some time and you've seen it from having been at the IMF, at the Independent Evaluation Office, at think tanks. Certainly you're a sought after consultant as well. What keeps you up at night with the global economy today? It's the... Unknown unknowns, I guess I, I could best put it. You know, we often talk about uh, known risks, unknown knowns, and unknowns unknowns. And, and there are certain things we know are happening, such as the slowdown in 70% of the global economy right now, according to the fund's latest projections. Uh, we know the, the debt problems in China. There are a number of things we know. There are what we call uh, no one unknowns, which Brexit would be an example. We're not quite sure what's going to happen, but we know something's going to happen. And then there are the unknown unknowns, which is, is there something out there? Uh, and I go back to the last crisis, which is, is the lesson we learned is we knew how to manage a bank that went under reasonably, but what we never understood really was the systemic effects that happened when you had a whole series of banks that started getting wobbly. And, and that's the sort of thing I describe as an unknown unknown. And I think that's the thing that scares me right now, that something is bound to happen that we don't fully anticipate. And I combine that with the fact that, you know, we have no U.S. leadership today. 
uh, on these economic issues. And indeed, we're witnessing the chilling effect of the Trump administration on, on global economic policymaking and cooperation. So that even when a crisis does hit, uh, one has to ask, where is the leadership going to come from? And certainly the funds there, but you need more than the fund. And I think that is the thing that gives me nightmares. Rachel, you're an avid watcher of the market. Um, you're a frequent commentator on a lot of news channels and business news channels in particular. Um, what is your sense of what the private sector out there is thinking? What are they doing to, um, are they still on a high? Are they prepared for some of the, I would say, kind of uh, fearful tone that we hear from policymakers and experts? Or are they in that good old bonanza period still where they're really celebrating? Thanks, Basma. The Those who are in the markets, financial markets, shorter term, I think have breathed a sigh of relief with uh, what they see as a reduction in some short-term tail risks. Those were, if we look back to December of last year, a fear of Fed over-tightening, this tightening of financial conditions, and worry that the U.S.-China trade war and this destructive trade policy that Tom's already alluded to would get worse. Now, I think there's there's a subdued tone from some people I speak to in the markets, particularly emerging markets-focused investors. But I think there is sort of this, maybe not euphoria, but this sense that any of the slowdown in global growth means that central banks will not normalize, that some people even expect and hope that the Fed will be cutting interest rates later this year, which uh, is not my baseline at this point. Um, and so I think... I think I worry that they that this is still a monetary, you know, that this is still like a, a monetary policy support to um, to global financial markets uh, and the like. Some people I speak to are quite worried about the brief inversions of the yield curve that we have seen and and suggest that that signals a U.S. or global recession. I think it's very hard to judge that at this point when central banks are such big holders of sovereign bonds and corporate bonds, especially where Europe is concerned and the, and the like. But we are in a slowdown. Um, one feeling I've heard in the last few days, though, is this question mark about whether 2020 will be better. I think everyone has already bought into this view that 2019 has brought a slowdown. And the question is, is how far the IMF's forecasts point to a reacceleration next year. They suggest that some of these shocks are one off, especially in Europe. And I think there's still a lot of open questions the other thing that I hear worry about, um, and maybe this is one of the known unknowns, has been this reacceleration of debt accumulation in frontier markets, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, and also to some extent the Middle East. And this question mark of will these countries be able to manage this leverage and debt? What are they spending it on? What are they using that policy space? Now, I think that's the type of thing one has to look both country by country um, to assess what's being done. But there are some systemic issues to be watched and monitored. So, Bob, let me turn to you. One of the themes that was prevalent here at the IMF meetings was China. 
whether it's debt inside China, whether it's the debt that China is putting on a lot of even these sub-Saharan African countries. You, um, in your program, uh, and a lot of the work that your team is doing is, is really concerned about China. Can I ask you to sort of tell our listeners who may not necessarily know the ins and outs of this, why, why is there so much focus here on China at these meetings? And why is it really the one country that garners so much attention? Okay, thanks, Besma. Well, first, I'd like to say that I agree with all of what the panel members have already said about some of the fragilities that are out there right now. And just to, to continue on that for one second, sentiment is very fragile right now. And so it's very easy to tip into a very bad place. Uh, and I think that is a concern. And, and on top of it, you know, related to what Rachel was saying, I mean, you still have a lot of life support coming from central banks and you've got very heavily indebted countries. And so I think there's been concerns about what can policymakers do if we end up in a bad place. Um, and one of, the, one of the concerns is China could, could tip us over into a bad place. I mean, it's a very heavily indebted country. Uh, and it's a heavily indebted country, especially at its point of, of development. It's, it's still got ample policy space. I mean, the debt load is high. And it, uh, I think one of the issues with China is debt is high and people don't understand where the debt is. It's very opaque. And, um, and so even though there's a fair bit of fiscal space left in China to take on some of that debt, if, it ha if the central government has to, it's just not clear where that debt's being held. So it's this opaque shadow or shadow banking activities. So I think that's where one of the concerns is. Um, and then on top of that, alongside China has slowed. And of course, GDP growth helps you service your debt, right? And so with growth slowing and debt, I mean, leverage is kind of leveled out, but it's leveled out at a very, very high, at a very high level. So, you know, you want to be able to continue servicing that debt, yet GDP growth is slowing. I think it's slowing more than the authorities had anticipated. Uh, not surprising given what's going on in trade and, and things like that. The question is, what can they do about it? And I think there's a lot that can be done. And maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a few minutes. So, Babak, tell us a little more about what is the role of uh, regulators and supervisors? I mean, what, what are they supposed to do in, in the global economy to keep us safe? Well, before I answer that question, I think, uh, I mean, this is very fascinating. But one thing that none of us said and it just popped in my mind as you were all talking about is we are being concerned about all these global issues. And in the background, there's also the lurking alternative facts. There's also dis disruption in technology. It's, uh, I guess, the erosion of the credibility of the elites, right? So the ground is becoming like a quicksand, right? So if we tip into a financial crisis or a big crisis of that sense, is it going to be every man, every person for himself at that point? And global economy as it's being fragmented, all these accords that have been come together through mm -hmm. Basel and everything else, is it going to hold? So let me just say that. Now, what's the role of the financial sector supervisors and regulators is to really truly understand what are the risks to the global economy, not from a from an academic level, but from a practical level. Learn from each other, uh, share the experiences. That's what we do in our courses. They're very practical based on case studies and role playing and simulations of exercises. And that is really what the only way you can really prepare for something. You can never prevent a crisis, but you can prepare yourself that you have the various uh, regulatory policy instruments and um, 
procedures and practices in place to be able to know who to call. We're always shocked by the fact that we go to countries and sometimes we were the first convener of a discussion be between a deposit insurance um, mm -hmm. official and a central bank at a real practical know-how level, right? Not at the big top level that the bosses are talking, right? So those are some of the things that we are trying to improve in terms of global capacity, right? Right, and from the last financial crisis, one of the things that we recognized was that there was not enough coordination, right? I mean, this was the essence of the wake-up call was that everybody's in their silos. The IMF needed to better communicate with the with the World Bank. It needed to better communicate with the private sector. The Financial Stability Board was really created to try and bring some of that together. And so, I mean, it's kind of uh, worrisome that 10 years post, more than 10 years post, we're still making introductions at the bureaucratic level inside a yeah. country. I mean, that's really... I mean, the international standards are very good now. There's core principles, Basel or insurance and all that. But, it, you know, in the words of some very wise uh, central bankers that I'm not going to name here, you can come up with all those best rules, but somebody's got to be on the ground to help people understand how to apply them in a very meaningful way to their economy, to their system, right? So... In fact, you know, when people ask me what's the benefit of these IMF World Bank meetings, I mean, there is some benefit that people for, you know, a short few days a year, twice a year in the case of the spring and annual meetings, get together to get to know each other so that they know their counterparts. So that, frankly, you know, the official in Canada knows who to call, in, you know, in, in China or at, um, at the IMF, there is a conversation being held at a higher level of uh, policy folk to get to these very candid discussions off camera where hopefully people can put aside their sort of nationalist interest and talk about vulnerabilities that they see. I mean, that's really the benefit because there's certainly, as we keep hearing uh, always after a crisis, is there's a lack of coordination. There's a lack of information. There's continued um, blind spots uh, before us. And back to, to what Tom was talking about, the unknowns. Okay, so Tom... I mean, what can we do about this? What are some of the interesting ideas about how to how to better prepare for the unknowns? I mean, even if that sounds almost ridiculous to say, but truly, I mean, what are the ways and mechanisms that governments and policymakers can be better prepared for the next next eventual crisis? I was I was at a, a workshop earlier today, and Stan Fisher was one of the people on the panel, and. As I was watching, I sat there and was thinking that Janet Yellen and Stan used to be the number one and number two at the Fed, and what intellectual depth and leadership there was there. And I thought, what do we have right now? I mean, the current chair, who may be fine, but doesn't come with that background, and, and the two latest Trump nominees for the Federal Reserve, which is just another example of the degradation of institutions that are critical to the functioning, of not of the, only of the U.S. economy, but the global economy. And, and that all is, is very worrisome. Can I ask Bob a question? I mean, he, he made some comments about China, which I agreed with, but I also wonder whether I could just substitute U.S. for China in that. If you look at the current U.S. debt situation, and I'd be interested in Bob's comments. Well, actually, it's, uh, it's remarkable how you could take some things that are going on around the world and go, okay, let's put the U.S. there. So I wrote a piece on Brexit recently and uh, for CG, so it's on CG Online, and it was talking about what is going on, like what I thought were the deeper underlying issues behind Brexit, and it's along the lines of, well, you haven't had a standard of living increase in a decade. 
you cannot afford when you when you don't have that you can't afford to fund programs it builds up resentment you get the populist backlash and i i said to one of my colleagues well you could just put us instead of uk in that piece it's it's quite remarkable and actually if i can just turn to one other thing cuz you didn't ask me what keeps me up at night <laughs> and i i always joke it's my kids um, <laughs> but to actually lead into one of the, some of the issues that i that do actually that that I'm thinking about a lot, and it relates to my kids in some senses because the policies that are being put in place now, some of the stuff that's been mentioned by Tom, for example, they're going to lead to lower living standards. Like, what sort of environment are we living in where policies are being put in place that are going to lower the living standards of the next generation? Like, that's got to be a first. And then on top of it, you know, one of the things I've pointed out in the Brexit piece is while all this is going on. And it goes to a point that Babak mentioned is the world's changing fundamentally because of digital technologies. And are we ready for that? The world of work is changing and is going to change. Do we have policies in place to help that transition? I think the answer is no. And then finally, where we're doing work at CG right now is on data. Like, what does data mean? So, for example, you know, using the analogy of our children. Well, you know, any any child born in the last five years has got a digital identity out there from everything that they've been doing online. And do we know what that is? And the answer is no, we don't. And this is happening for everybody. And so, you know, what are what are the implications of a lack of governance around the gathering and use of data and the associated technologies? I, I think the, these are really big, important issues. I just add or build on one thing Bob said, and you know the, this failure to increase living standards. Uh, I think is critical. There was a another interesting panel that I was able to to uh, catch where Christine Lagarde had invited four economists, all under the age of thirty eight, to talk about where are we going and as we celebrate the seventy fifth anniversary of Bretton Woods. And um, one of them was a professor at Harvard works looking at social impacts of policies, but some of her work had shown that, that it was in deindustrializing areas of the United States that you see this huge spike in crime and drug use and, and direct correlation. And, and they have apparently have a lot of evidence. And to me, that just highlighted the issue that, that uh, the problems of inequality, the problems, the fact that we've not handled the the transitional costs of, of the right policies and, and what's getting blamed are the right policies as opposed to the failure of domestic policy making to deal with these social adjustments. And and I think we we have built up this huge resentment and misunderstanding of what are the forces at work. And unless we begin to deal with these, I, I think the you know the implications are horrendous, frankly. I mean if I could uh, follow up on what Tom said I mean, I, I agree 100%. I mean, when you have disruption taking place for whatever reason, that's exactly when policy should come in. And in fact, there has been an absence of policy in many areas that, that, that hit people very deeply. I mean, the great financial crisis did provoke really you know, strong policy action. And I think you know, policymakers did what had to be done and uh, should be commended for that. But you can't just stop. You got to keep building upon that. I guess what I'd like to add here is that it's not, this is not going to make me very popular with anyone uh, around the world or even the regulators and supervisors. Okay, we're nerds. We never become popular. But, but think good. about it. I mean, and this is a question I've raised a few times. Uh, but one thing to think about is the global financial crisis after it hit 
practically nobody went to jail, right? You go back to earlier crises like SNL in the U.S. and others. There were people who were held accountable. They went to jail. Okay, I'm not. I'm not making an academic hypothesis here. I let it let you uh, work on that, whether it's logical or not. But uh, how much of the bra- Brexit resentment? How much of the Trump phenomena, how much of all these disruptions that we're seeing can be tied one way or another to a lack of accountability that we're seeing out there. When people are losing their own homes, losing their shares, and then others are getting big bonuses, inequality rises, you know, so there's got to be some somebody to look into this. Now, I understand the fine point between, you know, doing stupid things doesn't mean you've done illegal things, but there must be something here, right? And that's one of those issues that feeds right into the whole narrative of uh, fake news, conspiracy theories, things that we watch. And that is pretty dangerous, I think. Well, and I want to add, I mean, I, I just attended a very interesting panel about the role of trusts and how trusts are being used to squirrel away a lot of money. Very much, you know, legally done. It obscures a lot of wealth. Uh, the UK, I mean, we're not thinking about, you know, we, we sort of, when we think of tax havens, we tend to mm-hmm. think of all these lovely island economies and so forth. But in the United Kingdom, there's a lot of a lot of capital going in from all around the world in these trusts that you, through very legal mechanisms, that makes it very difficult for tax collectors to find out who owns it. It obviously allows a lot of developing countries where there's a lot of corruption and their leaders, for example, to squirrel away money. And it's done very much on, again, legally so. How do you create the mechanism where you still respect a country's sovereignty, but recognize that today in this very globalized economy, you can't assume that, you know, one person's policies and actions don't affect another country where we are interrelated and including when it comes to these legal parameters of uh, whether we're talking about hedge funds, whether we're talking about even, you know, taking this to a whole a different dimension, but even the, the fact that you have increasingly a lot of countries that uh, attract businesses to come to them and they are bringing uh, corporations to their country and evading a lot of corporate taxes. So the fact that Apple moves to Ireland, it means it's, you know, the American economy where most of the work is, most of the intellectual property right is created, all that does not benefit from taxing Apple. I mean, these are the kinds of things that make people frustrated to hear that Apple paid less taxes than, you know, Joe from Main Street. Uh, I wanted to pick up and maybe uh, point to uh, maybe a glimmer of hope. <laughs> maybe we all have to sort of end with one that I mean, I, I agree with all of the, the concerns, many of the concerns that have been laid out here, including these questions of, of transparency, these ways in which funds are hidden and, and particularly this some of the risks that come from even the way in which. The United States, for example, is using some of you know some of its power um, of the U.S. dollar and the like to you know by trying to impose financial sanctions, pushing some more of this activity into um, you know the dark you know so certain elements of I was going to say the dark web, but that may not be quite what I mean. So so this is just adds to this kind of period of uncertainty and remaking the rules. The glimmer of hope, I guess, is that we are in a point of maybe it's an alternative to alternative facts of alternative data, which I know is a buzzword right now. But one of the things I attended this week that was quite, that was interesting, actually earlier today, was some work that was being done on um, the digital economy in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And some of the ways in which new data points and new sort of access to technology 
technology are starting to bring access and bring some more transparency to, to, to populations. So now I'm not saying that the answer is just citizen journalists and under, undermining these things, but there are starting to be some proxies for some of this information. The other area of hope, back to my concern on, on debt that may be overdetermined, um, one of the other great sideline events that's been going on the, uh, these days has been a de- big debt conference at Georgetown University. And one of the panels I attended focused in on things that the International Monetary Fund, that the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, a variety of actors are doing to better capture and put in the same place these data and this liabilities. And this is only one part of the balance sheet. But the more that we can move towards better understanding some of the issues that we face, and that's not just debt, it might be thinking in a systematic way about climate risk, it might be thinking about difference in a way cybersecurity you know, cyber risk and the like, the more that policymakers can take action, but also corporations can build up some of their resilience and, and buffers. The hope is, though, that it isn't just going to be lots of individual responses that can counteract, but that greater information and hopefully greater trust in that information, I hope will bring some positive feedback loops. We'll see. So you left us on a hopeful note. We should end it there before we become even, <laughs> we go into the dark side. Oh, I love it. Please, yes, Papa, give us a hopeful note. <laughs> another hopeful note, but bring us back to a bit of a uh, point of perspective is the global financial crisis hit uh, developing economies, right? So that's actually something interesting to think about because the developing economies of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and others spend a long time preparing themselves and learning from the hardship that they experienced. So maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope that people can learn and make themselves more uh, prepared, right? That there's no guarantee. I'm not saying correlation is causation or the other way around. But the point is there is there are glimmers of hope out there. Uh, regulators and supervisors that we work with just can't get enough of this kind of a training. They always want more. They get it from us. They go get it from others. They come back and get it. So people are seized to be prepared against the next financial crisis. So that's a glimmer of hope for me. I like that. Okay, Tom and Bob. I think, you know, one area of hope may be a change in U.S. administration in, in 2020. And I think we need to, as I said earlier, I think many have written off the current administration, but they're beginning to think about, well, what do we do in 2020 or 2021 if there is a change in administration and what are we going to need to to get the the multilateral cooperation back on a, a good path. Alternatively, if, if there's not a change in administration, which somebody, Rachel, suggested earlier, uh, then I think that's going to be an inflection point, and the rest of the world is going to need to decide, fine, we're, we're prepared to challenge the U.S. at this time, but given the challenges we face, is that sustainable? And we may find uh, an acceler- acceleration in the eroding role that the United States plays uh, globally, uh, be it economically or be it security-wise. I mean, actually, to, to pick up on a couple of points that were just said, I think uh, the fact is that there are the, the world is changing and um, there are new ways to look at n- old issues and there are new ways to try and understand evolving issues. And, um, and I think there's a lot of promise in these new technologies that are going to allow us to do it. But I think what's really important is the governance framework around it. 
And this is something that the GFC taught us is that the governance around the financial sector was inappropriate. And I think we've learned a lot from that. I think we, we can't lose focus on governance, whether it's corporate governance or governance around the technologies. And of course that fits nicely into where I work, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think it's very important. Well, thank you, everybody. That was uh, fantastic. I know we're only scratching the surface of a big, big issue, uh, but I'm sure our listeners are feeling a little more well-informed, if not a little freaked out, but that's okay. Freaking out, it's probably healthy. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Dr. Andrew Thompson, Program Officer at the Balsey School of International Affairs. The Canada and World Podcast is produced by the Balsey School of International Affairs and opencanada.org. Please subscribe to this podcast. The latest episode will be downloaded right to your phone so you don't miss an episode and can listen on the go. Canada and the World can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and your favorite Android podcasting apps. If you'd like to know more about the Balsey School and our graduate programs, please visit balseyschool.ca and feel free to reach out to us.